Depending on how you want to count such things, we have roughly a dozen or so super old manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible. By super old, we mean generally anything written before about the year 1000 of the Common Era. The oldest complete Hebrew Bible we have is called the Leningrad Codex, so-called because it's housed in the Russian National Library in St. Petersburg, which used to be known as Leningrad. It was written in Cairo, Egypt, in the year 1009. And we know it's that year because the scribe was an incredibly nice guy who helpfully wrote that date on the book. Perhaps the most famous of these super old manuscripts is the Aleppo Codex, which dates to around 930 CE. It was written in Tiberias, a city in northern Israel, but ended up living for centuries in Aleppo, Syria. It used to be a complete Hebrew Bible, but about half of it went missing after 1947. The Codex was thought destroyed, but in 1958 an Israeli secret operation smuggled it out of Syria, saving what was left, which is now housed in Jerusalem. The Leningrad and Aleppo Codexes, and others that share some similarities, are all in more or less book form. As you go back in time, we're mostly left with scraps and fragments. In 1970, a tiny lump of fragments was discovered in Ein Gedi, a town in Israel next to the Dead Sea. It wasn't until 2016 that scholars had the necessary technology to examine it properly, and they found that the fragments were text from the Book of Leviticus. These were dated to around the 200s or 300s CE, so we're getting pretty far back. Then there's the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered beginning in the 1940s, containing bits and pieces of every book of the Hebrew Bible, except for the Book of Esther, and preserved in its entirety the Book of Isaiah. One of the great significances of this find was that it showed that the biblical text as we have it today compares almost identically to that of 2,000 years ago, a remarkable literary continuity. And these scrolls date from around 200 BCE to around 200 CE, making them amongst the oldest pieces of the Bible ever found. That honor, the oldest text from the Hebrew Bible ever discovered, belongs to two tiny scrolls found in an ancient Jerusalem tomb in 1979. These two scrolls were rolled up in small amulets, and it took several years to figure out what was written there. The amulets contained what we call the priestly blessing. It's found in the sixth chapter of the book of Numbers. May God bless you and guard you. May God make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God lift up his face unto you and give to you peace. These texts were dated to around the year 600 BCE, to a time when the Babylonian exile hadn't yet happened. Solomon's temple was still standing and the kings of the line of David ruled Judah. Now because the priestly blessing is found in the book of Numbers, it was tempting to come to the conclusion that the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Hebrew Bible, must have existed at the time these tiny scrolls were written. And that would have been extraordinary, for most scholars believe that the Hebrew Bible was compiled during and after the Babylonian exile, not before. Instead, what the ancient text of the priestly blessing tells us is that at least some of the texts we find in the Torah existed before the Babylonian exile, was known to the people, and was later added into the biblical account. Okay, so when then was the book of Numbers written to include this priestly blessing? And how about the other four books of the Torah? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And how about all the rest of the 39 books that make up the Hebrew Bible? And who wrote all this? Although we've been delving into this question in just about every episode this season, this is a complex, rich, and controversial subject worthy of a podcast season on its own. Instead, 
We'll just spend the next 20 minutes scratching the surface here in our second to last episode of season five, the first thousand years or so of Jewish history. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So in physics, we have the standard model, the bedrock theories about the makeup of the universe that scientists base their own ideas around, whether in agreement or in opposition. And biblical scholars have the same thing. It's called the documentary hypothesis. It applies to the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Traditionally, all five books were said to have been written by Moses. But by the Middle Ages, people began to realize that the books were written so differently that they couldn't have been from one single author, whether Moses or anyone else. The documentary hypothesis began in the 1700s and reached its high point during the early 1900s, when it was almost universally accepted as the model for how the Torah was written. The basic outline of the documentary hypothesis goes like this. We can tease out four different literary styles woven into these five books. Some books have just one of those styles, some contain several of them, and the four styles are each a different author. Not necessarily a single writer, it was more like a school of writers all working on one project together. And the four authors are each known by a letter. J, E, P, and D. So J stands for Yahwist. J, the Yahwist, is called that because he consistently refers to God by the name Yahweh. And J is particularly interested in stories and events that happen in Judah, the southern Israelite kingdom. This led many scholars to conclude that this writer came from Judah. Another source is the writer we call E, which stands for Elohist. And that's because he wrote God's name as Elohim, not Yahweh. And E was particularly concerned with Israel, the northern Israelite kingdom. So the theory goes that you can tease out these different authors by combing through a text and seeing how God is referred to, and whether a particular story seems to make Judah look good or Israel. And you can find J and E sprinkled throughout the first four books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers but not Deuteronomy. We'll come back to that. Now then there's the third source, which is P. And P stands for priestly. And this writer was concerned primarily with things that would interest the priests, like laws and rituals and blessings, like the one family amulets from 6th century Jerusalem. P too is sprinkled throughout the first four books and indeed makes up the entirety of the book of Leviticus. Sometimes these writers told the same story, and the biblical editors included both of them. A classic example is the story of the flood in the first chapter of Genesis. As we talked about at the beginning of this season, the root of this story comes from Sumeria, a couple thousand years before the Israelites. A version of this Sumerian flood story appears in nearly all Middle Eastern cultures. And the version in Genesis is actually two complete stories of Noah and the flood, but cleverly woven together. So let me ask you this. How long did the flood last? If you said 40 days and 40 nights, you're right. But if you said 150 days, you're also right. Both times are in the exact same story. And here's another one. Which bird found land? 
The dove, you say? And that's correct. Oh, but also the raven. So there are several duplicate and contradictory details in this same story. Now, why would there be two of the same story? Why wouldn't an editor have at some point just combined them or picked one version over the other? And the answer is likely politics. Imagine if the Democrats and Republicans had to write a single history of the United States together. They might both tell stories about George Washington, but those stories might differ slightly. And so rather than angering one side or the other by excluding their story, a clever editor might just decide to keep both versions. All the more so if the editor wasn't concerned with the facts so much as the overall narrative message. And so it was probably something similar at work with the story of creation, and with other stories in the Bible that have two versions. Different groups had different traditions about the same stories. Writers from the kingdom of Israel in the north versus those from the kingdom of Judah in the south. Priestly writers who descended from the line of Aaron versus those who claimed descent from the line of Moses. All insisted that their version had to be authoritative. So rather than try to choose, the editor just threw them all in there. And you know, I think there's something meaningful in that. Judaism famously holds space for contradictory ideas. The Talmud preserves centuries of arguments between the rabbis. Although it may not have been the intention of the biblical editor, I'd like to think that this effort was a stand against the zero-sum world in which we live in today, where everything needs to be shuffled into good or bad, black or white, Democrat or Republican. Instead of playing that zero-sum game, in which there must be a winner and a loser, the story of the creation of all humanity is one in which the pie is expanded, not contracted. These double stories in the Bible, of which there are several, are opportunities to invite differing interpretations that deepen our understanding. It's one of the ways we can see the Bible not as a restrictive religious text, but as an expansive guide for understanding our world and how we can best live in it. That's something to think about. But anyway, let's get back to the authors. So with this documentary hypothesis of the first five books, we've got J, E, and P. The Yahwist, the Eloist, and the Priestly Source. And then there's the fourth source, D, who we call the Deuteronomistic writer because he's responsible for writing the Book of Deuteronomy. Scholars have long noted that Deuteronomy stands out as quite separate literature from the other four books. It contains a law code and also a ton of history which is more in common with the books that come after it, like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Together, these all read like one long narrative of Israelite history, and were thus the work of a single literary source, this Deuteronomistic historian, the D source. Now, in recent decades, the documentary hypothesis has gotten picked apart, with scholars now questioning some of the foundational elements. Some now argue that J and E aren't really separate sources but the same writer, Others look at P, the priestly source, and argue that it isn't mostly original work, but the work of several layers of editors pulling pieces together over a couple centuries. Others argue that J came first, and the other authors were actually just editors adding material to fit between J's writing and the Deuteronomistic history. Returning to physics for a moment, some scholars argue that the Bible came together sort of like how Earth did. A spinning orbit of millions of pieces of rock kept smashing together, forming larger pieces which eventually, under gravity, coalesced into the Earth. 
And so too did pieces of text spin around the land of Israel over centuries, with bits and pieces joining to each other here and there as editors at various stages pulled different chunks together, eventually emerging into the coherent books that we have today. What most scholars do agree on these days is when the Torah was written. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers were probably pulled together after the Babylonian exile, so sometime around 520 BCE, and were probably finished by around 350. Some narrow it even further to just 100 years, from about 450 to 350 BCE. And that's not to say that every story in there was from that time period. We know, for instance, that the flood story in Genesis has its roots in Sumeria 2,000 years earlier. Again, there were editors who pulled together texts and stories and characters from here and there, combining elements of J, E, and P to produce a coherent whole. Deuteronomy is the oldest book of the five. It reaches back, as we've talked about before in this season, to the reign of King Josiah during the early 600s BCE. This was the book supposedly found having been lost in the temple by Josiah's high priest, a man named Hilkiah, who may very well have been the very first Deuteronomistic historian. He wrote the law code portion of Deuteronomy, as well as the later history about Josiah and his religious reforms, which centralized the worship of Yahweh at Jerusalem. This history was added to during the Babylonian exile in the 500s, and then the rest was added in after the exile, forming the full books of Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Remember, this was a history that recounted the conquest of Canaan by the Israelites, the era of the judges, the formation of the monarchy, the United Kingdom under David and Solomon, and all the kings of Israel and Judah, down through to the fall of Judah to the Babylonians in 586 BCE. These writers were telling specific stories that had an ideological purpose, to condemn idolatry, to condemn the kings who failed to uphold the covenant with God, and to praise those like Josiah and Hezekiah who instead upheld the primacy of God in the temple in Jerusalem. So who wrote the Torah? Well, J, E, P, and D. But we can't really attach any specific names to those writers, or those schools of writers, with any degree of certainty. They no doubt had access to various other kinds of texts that have been circulating for centuries already, and in the era after the Babylonian exile, what we call the Persian era, they wrote the works that became known as the Five Books of Moses, although the Book of Deuteronomy stands out as having begun in the decades before the exile and then been updated afterwards. Now, is there a whole lot more to this? Yep, tons. But like I said, we're just hitting the intro here. The five books of Moses, and the next several books of the Deuteronomistic history, they only make up a part of the total Hebrew Bible. So what about all the rest? By now, you've probably realized that the Hebrew Bible is the work of many authors and editors over a period of centuries. The main thing to know about biblical writers is that they wrote about what interested them, and they left out the things that didn't interest them. They wrote to make sense of the world around them as they understood it, and to craft narratives that gave meaning and purpose to theological and philosophical questions. They also wrote to the politics of the day. When Ezra stood before the people of Jerusalem in the early years of the 400s BCE and read the Torah, he was doing so to get everyone on the same page as far as this new Jewish religion goes. But he was also fulfilling an order from the Persian Empire, which then controlled Judah. 
Remember, the Persians wanted stability in their empire. That's why they allowed various conquered peoples to more or less govern themselves. But they needed to know who was who, especially in a strategic crossroads like Judah, where lots of people were mingling. And so part of Ezra's mission was to craft a legal regime that would distinguish the ethnically distinct community of Israelites from other people. It told the Persians, here's who the Israelites are, and if someone isn't following this law, they aren't an Israelite. And so parts of the Hebrew Bible may well be a product of Persia's control over Judah, and were designed to separate the Israelites from other people in the service of Persia's imperial concerns. Which, frankly, is a totally fascinating way to look at the historicity of the Hebrew Bible. But the point is that these authors then, scribes like Ezra and Nehemiah, were concerned with separation, with the division between Jews and non-Jews. But not all the biblical writers were. The book of Jonah was probably written within a hundred years of Ezra's Torah. It tells the story of the prophet Jonah, whom God sends to Nineveh to prophesy the city's destruction for its sinful ways. When the people there repent, God spares them from divine punishment. There's more to the story, of course, but one way to look at this is a kind of counter-response to Ezra and Nehemiah. The people of Nineveh are not Jewish, yet the Jewish God shows them mercy. Rather than the separateness of Ezra, then, the writer of Jonah is proposing a more universal view in which all people, not just Jews, are people of God. So again, who wrote the Hebrew Bible? Well, in some cases, authors who disagreed about the nature of Judaism, or at least offered different perspectives. They composed narratives or edited material that already existed to represent these views, contrasting the universal with the particular one author wrote that on the sixth day of creation, God created all of humanity, not just the Jews. But another wrote that at a place called Mount Sinai, God spoke only to the Jews, forming them into a distinct national group. The historian Marvin Goodman writes that the process of editing often involved a great deal of literary skill and provided an opportunity to insert the theological messages which justify the inclusion of these works amongst the sacred books of the Jews. By the end of the Persian era, in the early 300s BCE, we had most of what became the authoritative works of the Hebrew Bible. It wasn't quite complete, a few more books would still get written and more editing would take place, until the Bible as we have it today was completely finished probably around 164 BCE, when the book of Daniel was written. The Hebrew Bible comes to us in three parts. The first five books of Moses, which we call the Torah, then the next 21 books form the section called Prophets, or in Hebrew, Nevi'im. Then the last 13, which form the section called Writings, or Ketuvim. But these books weren't all written in this order. Some pieces embedded in the Hebrew Bible have truly ancient origins that we've talked about this season, like the Sumerian flood story that became the story of Noah and the Ark, or some of the laws from the book of Exodus that have their origins with the Code of Hammurabi from the 1700s BCE. Probably the earliest books written were some of the prophets, that middle section, Nevi'im. Parts of Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, Amos. Many scholars date these to the age of the Israelite kings during the 700s and 600s. Parts of the book of Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomistic history also likely came from this time period, 
Again, as we saw with people like King Josiah and the prophet Jeremiah. During the Babylonian exile in the 500s is when more gets written, especially of the Deuteronomistic history of the line of kings and prophets. Books like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. It's likely that editors went back over the original prophetic books from a couple hundred years earlier and updated and adapted them. They added in material that reflected on the current situation in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem and what that all meant. There is a third round of revisions in the 200 years that followed the Babylonian exile, beginning in the early 500s. The book of Deuteronomy and perhaps some of the prophets had more material added to them, again to update their narratives for the contemporary situation the Jews found themselves in, having come through the exile and ended up back in the land of Israel. This was likely the era when the first four books of the Bible were written, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, those authors we discussed earlier, J, E, P, and some of D. And straddling this era, the post-exile Persian era, with the next one, the Greek era, which began in the early 300s BCE, that brings us other biblical books, like the Book of Esther, which tells the story of Purim, the Book of Jonah, the Song of Songs, the Book of Job, the Book of Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and others. The last one written was probably Daniel, around 164 BCE. So we're looking at around five or six hundred years from when the first books were composed to the last. From some of the books of the prophets to the book of Daniel, roughly 700 BCE to 164 BCE. The point is that each book was likely written not by just one author, but several, and over several generations, and sometimes over several hundred years. Ultimately, a final editor went through a final draft, and the books settled into the texts we have today. It was a bit later, during the Greek era, that these texts took on their intensely authoritative nature, in which the Jews began to regard them as coming straight from the divine realm. Marvin Goodman writes that the belief in the divine origin of the words recorded in the Torah rendered sacred the parchments on which these words were described. In many respects, he says, Jewish reverence for scriptural texts as objects was closest in nature to pagan attitudes to the statues of their gods. For the Jews, these texts became holy. The Hebrew Bible, the great sacred text that guided not just their understanding of their history, but of their relationship to God and the obligations the covenant required of them collectively and as individual Jews. So all that only scratches the surface of the enormous question of who wrote the Bible. Priests and non-priests, upper-class elites and working-class prophets, kings and their scribes, perhaps women, all contribute to various pieces of what became the Hebrew Bible. It is one of the great accomplishments of human history, a literary tradition that may have begun bubbling up in the 1100s BCE and completed during the 100s, a thousand years or so of preserving memories, telling stories, writing laws, recording the birth of new ideas, developing ethics, passing along wisdom, and compiling histories. The words written then meant something to people, so much so that they were passed along for generations and incorporated into what became sacred texts. While the first temple still stood, before the Babylonian exile, Someone was so taken by some words that he had them carved on tiny scrolls which were placed in amulets which were left in his tomb. May God bless you and guard you. May God make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May God lift up his face unto you and give to you peace. This was the priestly blessing, later incorporated into the book of Numbers, that archaeologists found in 1979, the oldest biblical text yet discovered. It was probably added into the book by P, the priestly source author. Not much earlier than this discovery in 1979, a young Jewish boy attending an Orthodox synagogue observed people making a spreading gesture with their hands when reciting this priestly blessing, a physical supplication to the divine light shining through their bodies. This boy, named Leonard Nimoy, would later use this gesture for a secular but for some no less spiritual purpose, to accompany the phrase, live long and prosper, by his most famous character, Star Trek's Mr. Spock. From an ancient Jewish tomb in Jerusalem to a Hollywood set, the biblical writers reach far indeed. So next time, the final episode of season five, at long last, here on the first thousand years or so. Gotta say, I know ancient history is not for everyone, but I love this stuff. As always, I'm at jewidonno.com, and my email is jewidonnopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahitraot. See you later.